Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. I'm coming live from my den under the stairs here in Bolton, UK. I'm surrounded by my stuff. At the time of recording, summer 2016, it's currently crammed with rackets, bowls, frisbees, disposable barbecues and pop-up tents that'll never pop back down again because the family uses hallowed space as a dumping ground for the school holidays. Ah, to have a room of one's own. But my... Uh, Ridiculous Shrine to the actress uh, Caroline Monroe is still here. I'll just give it a tap. Aha, for this episode, she'll be in the guise of a tough celebrity journalist from Adamant's video for Goody Two Shoes. You don't drink? You don't smoke? What do you do then? Uh, To my right is my library of tabletop RPGs. And my grognard files. And for this episode, I'm going to reach over and there's a small file that's been squeezed by a heavy, heavy files of the other game. I've got it. Ah, yes. It's a, it's a small file, but it's a game that's bigger than you think. It's Tunnels and Trolls. All the usual sections are here. Uh, I've got a potted history which will look at how the game emerged like a phoenix from Phoenix, Arizona, from the ashes of complexity of the other game that we covered in the previous episode. Um, there's also Open Box, where Blythe joins me in a life-size replica of my teenage bedroom to discuss the early experiences of playing the game. The White Dwarf, at Daily Dwarf from Twitter, looks at the appearances of TNT in the greatest RPG magazine from back in the day. Uh, somewhere in here as well, Eddie will be joining us from his shed. It was the first game that he played, so he'll be sharing his origin story. Next time, I'll be joined by Big Jack Brass, John Hancock, who unlike the rest of us, has continued playing Tunnels and Trolls for the last 30 odd years, and he's able to give a unique, expert insight into the game. We've had some more reviews, uh, which is great. Um, This one from iTunes in the USA um, particularly captures the spirit of what we're trying to achieve with the podcast. This is from Ice Engine. This podcast is simply terrific. Fun but not childish, carefully thoughtful and simply produced. They're unique characters but still think very carefully about topics. They take the topics they discuss, but not themselves, very seriously. Which, the same could be said for Tunnels and Trolls. It's a game that takes fantasy, but not itself very seriously. So, without any further ado, ramblers, let's get rambling.
Sorted History. This book is dedicated to Dave Arnson and Gary Gygax, who first opened Pandora's Box, and to Ken Santandre, who found that it could be opened again. Thus goes the dedication in the RuneQuest colophon, acknowledging Ken Santandre's role in realising the potential of RPGs and breathing a new life into them. Perhaps it's more accurately expressed as that Ken Santandre found that Pandora's box could be opened differently. Santandre was a librarian, a gamer, an avid sword and sorcery and science fiction reader with a collection of Robert E. Howard, Moorcock, Fritz Lieber and Jack Vance amongst others. In the late 1974, he became aware of a new game being developed in Wisconsin and he was keen to participate. But in Phoenix, Arizona, it was difficult to get hold of a copy. He eventually managed to read somebody else's in the White Box original D&D in the April of 1975. He thought that the concept was great a chance to recreate the world he enjoyed in literature. But he thought the game mechanics were terrible. And how on earth was he meant to get hold of funny-shaped dice? He spent several days recreating his own version of the game, a version that he could understand with accessible rules, but borrowing the same principles of D&D. Players adopted the role of characters whose attributes were determined by dice rolls, who explored stories coordinated by gamesmasters. Sant'Andre uh, simplified elements, removed alignment, armour class and other wargaming features that made D&D difficult to understand. And, with the help of his friend, Steve McAllister, generated ideas that were suffused with his own idiosyncratic humour. The first game they played was a two-level complex in Gristlegrim Dungeon, which was warmly received by his friends, who were all enthusiastic to get hold of their own copy of the game. It came up with the name Tunnels and Trug Delights, and as At Daily Dwarf has suggested, it was the first time that uh, a design by committee has worked because Rod Carver suggested that Trug Delights should be replaced by Trolls. More photocopies were distributed and later he hooked up with Rick Loomis, a play-by-mail specialist who owned Flying Buffalo. And they continue to print and distribute it. It's undergone a number of editions over the years and was recently re-released in a deluxe edition through Kickstarter, which is now available at your friendly local game store. It's a really handsome edition, uh, retaining many of the elements that were in that first edition. To my mind, it's worth it just for the grey call-out boxes 
which are filled with great advice for games masters and players, which are applicable to Tunnels and Trolls and any game. Also, this deluxe edition retains that special element of Tunnels and Trolls, a special element that we didn't really appreciate, and that special element is a sense of humour. Open box! Hello there, Blythe. Hello, Doug. So this is the part of the podcast where we get together and we go back to the time when we first started playing the game, or our first encounter of the game, okay. And again, at great expense, to help us do that, I've recreated a bedroom, I've recreated my bedroom. Uh, it's impressive. Yeah, well, it's impressive. I've gone to a lot of effort. Your, your windowless bedroom. Windowless bedroom. <laughs> This is the early day. This is the early days, isn't it? Um, I did eventually si- climb the uh, social ladder and got and, a window. And got a window. Yes. Yeah. yeah, you were you were up- upwardly mobile. It was a time of Thatcher, wasn't it? And yeah. There you go. You're a living example of Thatcherism. You've gone from a windowless bedroom to one with a window. Yeah. Onward and, and upward. Yeah. I eventually got some curtains with uh, white diagonal lines in, um, but in, in the early. In the... Well, you were 25 then. Well, <laughs> at the time you were given curtain, the greasy pole. Time you got curtains, you were at least twenty-five. I think maybe even twenty-six. So I was in the middle bedroom of uh, a terraced house, and it was it was an odd room, um, not least because it had lime green walls. It's got as you can see, lime green walls. Yes. Orange ceiling. Yeah. And apart from the bed, every other piece of furniture has been relegated from somewhere else in the house. So that that right. chair that chair you're sitting on, I don't remember that chair, but that that was the games master's chair. It was, it was an old church chair. Yeah, really heavy yeah. and uncomfortable to sit yeah. on. Mm. Yeah, and, and you had a skylight. A skylight. The only source of light was a skylight. Yeah, felt so, like we were in a dungeon actually, <laughs> didn't it? It did. And as you can see here, now my mum told me that this was a desk. But it was actually a, a, a. She said, "This is a bureau. You can use a bureau." But it's actually an old drinks cabinet that folded down, <laughs> and it was too high to sit at. So it was it was useless. Times were hard. Times were hard. And then on the walls, uh, you can see uh, posters. So there's uh, by the side of my bed. There's uh, Claire Grogan uh, from uh, Smash Hits poster. <laughs> Stuck on with drawing pins. Drawing pins. We didn't care back then. It was drawing. Had Bleetat even been invented? I don't know. Bleetat was a newfangled thing, wasn't it? It was. It was viewed with suspicion. Yeah. Tickling like, Bolton, viewed with suspicion like witchcraft. What's this? What's <laughs> wrong with the drawing pin? <laughs> Left greasy marks on you all. Yeah, well, this leaves a hole. For you. <laughs> <laughs> and the other uh, pride of place is my Starburst mag- poster magazine of Excalibur. Yes. Now, you remember going watching Excalibur? I do remember going watching that. This is John Borman's uh, 1981 film. We were too young to go, weren't we? It was a double A. Uh, yeah, that's, that's right. We were actually t- technically too young. Yeah. Um, but somehow we managed to persuade the woman at the box office we could get in. We got so far, and she said, yeah, okay, I'll let you in. But we only br- brought enough money to pay for a child's ticket. That's right. We had made a <laughs> miscalculation that we were going watching an adults-only film but expected to pay children's prices. Yeah. The fundamental flaw there, isn't there? Yeah. That's not going to work. <laughs> Somebody in the queue uh, saw yeah, pity on us. a nice lady took pity on us, didn't she? Yeah. And paid, yeah. Paid for us. So, yeah. so this, is a, this is a room where we played Tunnels and Trolls because this was at a point where we were playing 
uh, RuneQuest and Traveller. Fairly much on rotation. I think Simon have got advanced well, Legion had, of Dragons. Had, and, that, and, and that is one of the reasons that we ended up playing Tunnels and Trolls. Because once again, the Prime Directive kicked in, didn't it? It did, In yeah. that, you know, I was in my eternal quest for a fantasy stroke sword and sorcery role-playing game. Hmm. Um, I couldn't buy D&D. Uh, I couldn't buy RuneQuest. So I had to go for something else. And Tunnels and Trolls was there as, a, yeah. as an option. Yeah. It, it, it was quite interesting. So a, a Prime Directive was um, a rule that we had that only the games master could own the rules yes. of the game. Yeah, yeah. There was an exception, though, wasn't it, with uh, Tunnels and Trolls? Because I had it as well. It did. It became an exception. I think initially I bought it with a view to this would be my fantasy game. Um, and in the spirit of Open Box, um, flicking through those rules uh, was, a, was an interesting experience because although we'll, we'll talk about some of the mechanics later, um, I can remember reading through the rules and thinking, this, this, is a, this is okay, this is a great little game. You know, it's okay, it'll work. It's got, it's got swords and, and magic and th- rogues and warriors and, you know. And I have to say, although it only uses D6... And as you know, I have a bit of a problem with that because I like my funny dice. I like the funny shaped dice. I will forgive it because it doesn't have any clerics in it. <laughs> that is a definite plus. Well, actually, Ken St. Andrew said um, uh, religion doesn't uh, have any purpose in my life, so why should I have it cluttering up my game? <laughs> Absolutely. So that's Absolutely. The... <laughs> so there's no clerics in it. So I thought, although I can't roll a D100 or a D8, I have to stick to D6s. No clerics, brilliant. But there was one problem. And this, this, for me, this is the reason that it broke down the prime directive wall, if you like, for want mm-hmm. of a better term. When I got to reading the spells in Tunnels and Trolls, my heart sank. Because some of the spell names are a bit daft. So, for example... A healing spell. What what you would call healing or cure light wounds or call it what you will <laughs> in Tunnels and Trolls is called Poor Baby. <laughs> poor Baby. And, and, and I think that um, one of the most famous spells, of course, is um, called Take That You Fiend, which is the equivalent of a kind of fireball spell, isn't it? Or yeah, a lightning yeah. bolt spell. Yeah. And I can remember my kind of heart sank a bit because I thought it was going so well. But now this... It's a bit daft. It's a yeah. bit silly. How am I supposed to, you know, convince my friends that this is a, a, a viable fantasy world, like the world of Conan or the world of Elric, you know, because this was before Stormbringer, yeah. or, or the world of Tolkien or the world of Jack Vance, when the wizard's going to be casting a poor baby spell on people? Oh, there was others as well. There's others you're forgetting. Uh, zombie Zonk, which yeah. is oh, God. where you create, create oh. zombies. Oh, it's still painful to talk about it. A zapper thingamum. Yeah. Do you remember zapper thingamum? Yeah, I've tried to forget it, but yeah. <laughs> and uh, upsy daisy. Yeah. Tripping people. And, and I remember, uh, I remember doing it. I think the day or the day after I bought it, going through the rules and changing some of the spell names in pencil. Yeah. So I changed poor baby to healing, and I changed take that euphine to fireball or lightning bolt or something. Yeah. And then I had that anxiety that we, we got when we were yeah. 12 or 13 years old of, 
oh now I've changed the spell names I'm not playing it properly I'm not playing it properly I then remember rubbing all the pencil markings out and thinking oh, I'm just going to have to go with yeah. it and, and for me that I, I think in many respects and when we talk about the rules we, we'll discover why Tunnels and Trolls is sort of a a work of genius in many ways but the thing that let it down for me was the spell names and I think what happened then is that I sort of thought oh well this is okay we can play this but we're never going to run a serious yeah. <laughs> I said serious I was only 13 <laughs> serious fantasy campaign yeah. with this game and that's why I think we all then started to run a bit of Tunnels and Trolls yeah. on a kind of one-off yeah. basis because we didn't take it that seriously. Yeah. I mean, we're forgetting uh, Yasa Masa as well, which is a slavery spell. Is that, raci- <laughs> is that racist? I don't know. I don't, okay. I don't want to think okay. about them. Yeah. I don't want to think about them. That's that sense of like <laughs> reading through it and thinking, this is, this is good. This is it. I've got to have... I've, I've, I've got round the Prime Directive and I've managed to find a swords and sorcery fantasy game. And oh, oh, what what are these spell names? See, oh, I, I no. think I think uh, Blythe, I feel differently than you about it. Mm. I feel differently about it. Um, I think the reason the reason being is a couple of a couple of reasons. I think um, at the time, I mean, let's face it, what we what we're exposing here is at thirteen we were pretty poor faced gamers. Yes, we were. We we're poor faced and insecure. Insecure. Yes, yes absolutely. So if you think of uh, at the time I was running a Glorantha campaign that was really portentous and you know mm. there was like yeah. Grindel was some yes. kind of evil genius who yeah. was you know threatening the fabric yeah. of the world. Yeah. You were running traveller games that were you know epic on epic scales mm. yeah. and moving around. And I seem to remember, even at the time, you know, I think we've got different memories of this. I think I ran um, Tunnels and Trolls game, and you ran Tunnels and Trolls game. And to me, it was liberating because you can make stuff up. Yes, I think that's right. When we got round to playing it, it did feel liberating. Yes, I think that's true. And I think the spell names. Are almost part of it, part of that kind of zaniness of it, mm. that kind of yeah. um, off the wall. I mean, when you, when you open this uh, great golden box with the um, illustration by Liz Danforth, I mean, mm. even the illustrations kind of reflect it, don't they? So they kind of yes. got a yes. simple elegance to them, haven't they? So when you open up that box, yeah. and you've got um, you know you've got the solo adventure, you know the Buffalo Castle, you've got the uh, Dungeon of the Bear level one, and mm. uh, looking there, you get a sense of the game, and the game is all about like crazy traps and uh, crazy occurrences, and yes. uh, just make it up, just go for a real Gonzo spirit. Yes, and we kind of recoiled from that. Yes, you're right. We did. Uh, certainly, I did because I wanted what I was looking for. I think is not what perhaps Tunnels and Trolls is offering. Yeah. What I was looking for was a fantasy game uh, that I would be able to do those kind of big campaigns, and like you say, serious kind of epic campaigns. Tunnels and Trolls just isn't, doesn't no. lend itself to that in no. a way it's, the way it's position positions itself. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we, we did kind of recoil from that a little bit. Um, but... You're right, once we got round to playing it, 
and we used to play it very much on a sort of one-off basis. We did, yeah. It was almost it was almost like a, a sort of breath of fresh air and a bit of a relief from, from you know yeah. it was a, a little it was it was like <laughs> RuneQuest and Traveller were these kind of serious games that we were slogging through in some epic campaign and suddenly yeah. we could we could have a day off yeah we have a day off and play tunnels and trolls and have some fun <laughs> i think uh, tunnels and trolls is the first game that i went into as a games master and this is early on where i had very minimal prep mm. and that's probably the model that i've followed ever since <laughs> <laughs> you know that because uh, with uh, with room quests of course like, you need to have you know your NPCs ready, mm. and I think to make stuff up on the fly was yeah. was difficult uh, yeah. at that time. Mm. When, particularly when you were uh, clutching onto things because you were insecure about it. I think um, mm. tunnels and trolls was liberating. But even even then, I think we were um, we were still uptight about it. And I think the difference um, became apparent when Eddie joined us mm. and his mates. So Eddie and his mates joined us a couple of years after we started playing, and their background was Tunnels and Trolls. Yeah. And what they did, they were, went really gonzo with it and came up with ideas that we thought were terrible, yeah. but on reflection, were brilliant. Yeah. Well, so well, so, 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 so they, they came up, for example, with the Java Blast, you know, where they had javelins, that, <laughs> that, you know, a troll yeah. that could fire yeah. javelins, and they ported this into RuneQuest, hadn't they? Because they'd been playing Tunnels and Trolls mm. and they'd been allowed to have this javelin firing uh, crossbow. Um, Eddie had a character whose hand was detachable, and it had a concealed blowpipe in the uh, in in his arm. <laughs> and again, it was it, it, we were playing RuneQuest, but they brought these ideas yes. from Tons and Trolls yeah. because they felt the freedom to make stuff up. Yeah. A sense of freedom that we didn't really have when we were uh, playing it. They they really went hog wild with it. Well, a sense of freedom that you you could argue we didn't have because of our experiences on the one hand I think we had um, Traveller and RuneQuest which had back settings and backdrops that gave you a sense of restriction but yes. we discussed several times in these podcasts you know the Lunar Empire and Grolantha and you know Traveller the Imperium and that sense that you couldn't do things because you'd break the universe that you were playing in whereas Tunnels and Trolls didn't have that universe it was just open-ended, so it could be any kind of fantasy world that you wanted. There was that. And also it comes down to our, that, that insecurity that we had about playing it right. You know, and yeah. Tunnels and Trolls wasn't really covered in White Dwarf. Um, there was a general sense... People might correct me about this, I don't know. Maybe this is just our experience. But there was a general sense of people being a bit dismissive about Tunnels and Trolls. Mm. I mean, that might not be true in no, I th- the I States, but certainly in the UK, there I, was I a sense in which it was this other game that was a bit daft and a bit simpler and a bit, well, it's all right, but it's for beginners, it's for people who don't take it seriously. There was that, I think there was that sense yeah. about it. Um, so that that played into it as well a little bit. Um, I, I I think I think so I think so but I think what uh, I think you're right I think even at the time it was seen that and I think that's why subsequently it's been recognised as an underrated uh, thing of genius you know because absolutely. you know it was an indie game before yeah. indie games uh, yes. were possible because yeah, yeah, it yeah, allows that yeah. uh, allows that freedom and I think the reason why uh, we allowed ourselves um, 
the license to play. I'm going to use a, a, a phrase from cultural studies now. Brace yourself. Steady on. I know, well, it has a bardic function. So like a bard. So what they say in cultural studies? Not a first edition D&D bard. No. <laughs> I mean, that's, that is difficult. So a bardic function is where, you know, uh, comedians, jesters mm. have a special license to put fun at authority. So, you know, they yes. draw a circle yeah, around yeah, yeah, yeah. it yeah. and they're immune from any um, insults because they've taken on the uh, the jester tone. So that those funny spell names are precisely the thing that make it what it is because mm. it's saying, give me license. In this world of tables yes. and strict instructions yes. that we're, I'm going to do this a little differently. Yeah, there's no, um, there's no reference to being gentle but firm with players is there? No, there isn't. <laughs> In fact, the opposite, you know, just opposite. make it up. Make yes. it up. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, and what's interesting about Tunnels and Trolls is that when you look at newer or more modern role-playing games now, I think they have much more of a debt to Tunnels and Trolls than they do to some of the other games that were around then. Yeah. Because more modern games have that kind of looser, flexible yeah. game playing, which is the direction role playing's gone in. So if you if you look back at when we were started playing in the early eighties, there was that sense of Tunnels and Trolls, a game like Tunnels and Trolls, simple, it's simple, maybe it's too simple. What role players really loved was D and D with its tables and its levels and its classes and its endless you know, at third level you get this ability, at fourth level you get that ability, but you do need a charisma of eighteen to be this character and a strength of fourteen to be that character class. You've got all those kind of complex complex rules that people clearly seemed to like back then. That seemed to be what role playing was all about. Mm. And people were sniffing about Tunnels and Trolls, but if you look at modern games now, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we've been playing Knights Black Agents, Numenera, games that the setting of those games is quite rich, but the rule system it probably owes more of a debt to Tunnels and Trolls, or the ethos of Tunnels and Trolls in a strange way, than it does to some of the other games that are around then. Yeah. Because it's all about simplicity, being able to improvise, uh, and not being too worried about rules yeah which is what tunnels and trolls was all about back yeah. then yeah you know? yeah absolutely and it's uh you know you, you could argue that it was the first role-playing game because it's the first one that shook off wargaming yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean there is the thing i think i think i'm right in saying that ken santander looked at D and thought how can I make this easier? Yes, absolutely. And when you read it, it's a fantastic job of. That's exactly what he does. Well, it's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? Because uh, what Guy gets uh, the path that Guy gets went down, as we've discussed previously, is, um, you know, people are struggling with this. Um, I'm going to give them more tables. I'm going to give them a r- mm. random dungeon, random dungeon, dungeon generator. generator. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because what, what they what <laughs> yeah. they need is stuff to help them play this. Yes. What uh, Kent and Andrew do? Well, let, I'm going to take a left turn here. And right. take it right down, yeah. right down. What what is it that you actually need um, to play this? Yeah. And I think that's where the beauty mm. of the simplicity and elegance of the rules yeah. comes on when we come to look at it. I think um, a lot of the time with uh, Tons and Trolls, 
uh, and I've been experiencing this uh, recently. I've been um, revisiting the solo games and mm. uh, that thing. So yeah. you know, uh, playing with myself uh, in in my room. <laughs> You know, it's taking me right back to being a teenager. Right back to being a teenager, yeah. 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 And um, I, I seem to remember uh, rebuying these when um, when they came out in Corgi paperbacks mm. in the mid-80s. Yeah. And I went to college because I think they re-released them in the UK um, as paperbacks at the time when Fighting Fantasy had kind of took off and the, mm. uh, that kind of uh, solo book phenomena. And I remember taking these to college and mm. it was my last um, last thing before I went into deep freeze, you know. Last gasp. The last gasp. Playing. Yeah. playing those solo games in college. Yeah. So. But the solo games are interesting as well, aren't they? In the sense that Tunnels and Trolls had a lot of solo games. But that that's a that again, looking back, that's a good thing, isn't it? That's a good thing because it would have been Interesting and enjoyable if D and D and RuneQuest had more and Traveller had solo games. You know, I know RuneQuest had a few, didn't yeah, they? Yeah. But generally speaking, they didn't have solo games. Tunnels and Trolls did. Um, so that's a good thing. But at the time, there was a whiff of, again, this isn't a serious game because it's for people who don't know any gamers. Yes. They're on their own. Yeah. They don't have a gaming group. Like us. <laughs> like us. Yeah. But there was that as well, wasn't there? There was a sense of... Because it was for people... Oh, or it was almost like Tunnels, or Tunnels and Trolls. Yeah, oh, that's the game for people who don't are in a gaming group and want to play on their own or something. Yeah. There was that Because there were that many solo games for Tunnels and Trolls. At least that's the way it felt at the time. Yeah. I think it's inaccurate, but there was that sense, I think. Yeah, you know, definitely. It's for lonely people, and of course, as we know, gamers are not lonely people at all, are they? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can I can send something over in our bedroom. Um, I've got to mention I've also set the uh, uh, alarm um, around a certain point in the evening. We would know that the gaming would come to an end because my dog Jamie would uh, let us know that he needed a walk, and uh, yes. Okay. I can sense it now. Oh, God. There's no bloody windows. <laughs> Saving throw. <laughs> the White Dwarf. Tunnels and Trolls and White Dwarf. A missed opportunity? So, over the last few podcasts, we've looked at how White Dwarf covered the other game, TM. But what about the other, other game? the teenage tearaway to AD&D's sensible older brother, Tunnels and Trolls. Well, from the feast of articles for AD&D, we're back to a bit of a famine. Not quite as bad as the single feature for Stormbringer, but not far off. What is it with you and games designed by Ken St. Andres, White Dwarf? The articles that did appear had quite an impact on me though, as we'll see. I should state from the outset that I didn't play much Tunnels and Trolls during my early years in RPGs, with one notable exception, which we'll come on to. I'm not really sure why, maybe because at the time anyway, it wasn't being sold in a big colourful box, and so it didn't jump out at me from the shelves of F.C. Parker, like RuneQuest had. As an aside, 
Looking back, it always surprises me how eager I was to learn and play multiple different RPG systems, even if they were in the same genre. I hadn't been playing D&D very long, and I was still really learning those rules when I got RuneQuest, but then I launched into that game happily with equal enthusiasm. At the time, I just loved the crunch, I suppose. For whatever reason, Tunnels and Trolls never really crossed my radar. But what about White Dwarf? What was its coverage of the game like? The Tunnels and Trolls rules, not exactly sure which edition, first, second, were reviewed way back in number two's open box column. The rules cost the princely sum of £1.75 from Strategy Games Limited, produced under licence from Flying Buffalo. The reviewer was none other than Louis Pulsifer, and on the whole it was an even-handed review. Lou dismisses the idea of TNT as being nothing more than a rip-off of D&D, more accurately characterising it as a variant, an attempt to streamline and simplify the arcane original D&D rules. He finds pluses and minuses in this regard. Some of the rules are commended, with the possible adoption of D&D players suggested. But Lou finds the rules a bit too terse. He thinks that combat could do with some more examples, and without much guidance on building adventures, the heavy burden is placed on the GM. And then there's TNT's possibly most diversive issue, its humour. Uh, to quote Lou, TNT is not really a serious game, though this might not bother British D&D players because so few here play D&D in serious vein. What, what, what? I say, steady on, old boy. He didn't appreciate the suggestion in the rules of including as much humour in the tunnels as possible, preferring it to come from the interactions of the players themselves rather than being inherent in the game. And, of course, there are the infamous TNT spell names, which Lou sees as reinforcing the overemphasis on humour. The review finishes rather unusually. I think Lou Pulsifer can't help writing content for D&D, and so, despite this being a review, he sneaks in his conversion of the TNT Rogue class for D&D. Cheeky Dr. Pulsifer, cheeky. There's no score at the end either, or at least if there was one, it wasn't printed. Odd. Over the next few years, nothing else appeared in White Dwarf relating to TNT. But then, in the spring of 1982, the cloud parted and TNT had its moment in the sun. Issues 30, 31 and 32 all featured Tons and Trolls content from the head honcho himself, Ken St. Andre. First in issue 30 came the Apocrypha According to St. Andre, a mixture of personal introduction with an account of the genesis of Tunnels and Trolls, accompanied by some lovely evocative illustrations by 
John Barnes, Chris Carlson, and Liz Danforth. Now, RPG designers had been featured in White Dwarf before. Gary Gygax, Mark Miller, and Greg Stafford had all been interviewed. But this was different. Not an interview, but a fireside chat, where he introduced himself to the White Dwarf readership. What it sets apart for me is Ken's personal, friendly voice. It was just this 34-year-old guy from Phoenix, Arizona, who loved playing games, you know. He, he, He outlines his love of fantasy, history, mythology and folklore and lists the many games he owned and played with one, yes, that one, conspicuous by his absence. It was his dissatisfaction with this one and only encounter with D&D that led to the creation of TNT. Ken is open and honest about his motivations, having seen the rather garbled melange of rules that is the original D&D, I can see why he decided to try and write his own game. He tackles the differences between TNT and D&D head on from the outset. His aim was to have a simpler, faster mechanics than D&D and to bring humour to the fore. To quote Ken, You absolutely need a good sense of humour to play TNT, otherwise you're just not going to understand why berserkers get an extra combat ad for chewing on their shields. From Ken's account, however, it sounds as though it was slow going in the early years. It was not until a deal was done with uh, Rick Loomis of Flying Buffalo that TNT began to take off. At $2 a pop, five times cheaper than the other game. Even so, in early 1982, it was still a small player in the RPG market, and so Ken's feature ended with an exhortation to White Dwarf readers to submit their material to, for TNT to the magazine. In issue 32, Ken St. Andre followed up with another article called A World of Your Own. Despite being only one page long, and despite me not being much of a TNT player at the time, it left a lasting impression on me. Why? Well, the article basically outlined Ken's philosophy of gaming, which was very much an easy-going approach, endorsing the idea of players modifying the rules to suit their own playing style. This was a refreshing opinion to be coming from an actual games designer, There were no edicts on how to uh, give gentle but firm reminders of the correct way to play. Now, I was never much of a rules lawyer, sorry Blythe, and I used to forget or ignore the rules during the excitement of play. But at the time, I was going through a bit of a crisis of confidence with RuneQuest, feeling that Unless I understood them all the minutiae of Glorantha in detail, I wouldn't be playing the game properly. The sentiments expressed in this article really spoke to me and made me realise that if my version of Glorantha didn't match the official one from Chaosium, well, it didn't matter. It was my game. Ken 
demonstrates his ideas simply but effectively. What if you prefer a basic role-playing's percentile combat system to TNT's? Then just use it. He illustrates this concept of improvising combat rules on the fly with a short-lived tale of Glum the Dwarf, as he briefly takes on Flame Gusher the Dragon. Result? Well, fast, entertaining combat, and one with a dwarf flambe. Ken revisits the TNT spell names again, and is magnanimous enough to say, if you don't like them, don't use them. His main point is to evolve your own style of play, and then to change the rules to suit, not the other way around. Like I said, particularly at the time this was published, this was a very refreshing and thought-provoking article. Of course, almost inevitably, there was a snippy letter from Don Turnbull about the article in a subsequent issue, but the less said about that, the better. Now, as I said earlier, although I didn't play much TNT back in the day, there was one exception. That came in issue 31, with the publication of the solo scenario, The Mad Dwarf. The Meat and White Dwarf TNT Sandwich. I think this was the first time that I'd encountered a solo scenario, but with an illustration by the great Russ Nicholson, depicting the gnarliest of dwarves. I couldn't resist diving in. Looking back, the only thing I can't fathom is what rules I used. As I say, I wasn't familiar with the TNT at the time. I suppose I must have used a kind of cooked-up D&D variant. It's a short scenario, pretty tough in places, but it epitomises the Kensent Andres view that, above all, Gaming should be fun. The most memorable bit that really stuck in the teenage minds of myself and my friends was the encounter with the dwarven dancing girls. I can't imagine why. So much so that they cropped up as a reoccurring characters in many of our games, even appearing in Traveller's Starport once. As I started writing this, I decided that I shouldn't rely on my memory hazy at the best of times. But I should play through the scenario one more time. So I grabbed my TNT rules, yes, I finally got some, and I rolled up a character. Count Bronze, a grizzled human fighter, who then proceeded to stagger through the snow to that oddly familiar, strangely built building looming out of the storm. Well, he survived some banter with the eponymous dwarf, as well as some ropey old stew. But things took a turn for the worse when he decided to turn in for the night. Suffice to say that a lie down in the bed didn't really agree with him, and he ended the adventure considerably more vertically challenged than when he began it. A rather ignominious end, but at least he got to see the dancing girls. After these three features, and despite Ken Santandre's call to arms, nothing else appeared in TNT in the pages of White Dwarf. There was a ZX81 program for TNT combat resolution in the Microview column, 
and a couple of reviews of Flying Buffalo products, but no more articles for TNT itself. Were none ever submitted, I wonder? Was the dominance of AD&D just too great amongst the readership? Whatever, with the benefit of hindsight and my subsequent appreciation for the simple elegance of the rules, this feels like a real missed opportunity. The idiosyncratic approach of many of the regular White Dwarf writers would have fitted really well with the TNT style, and makes me wonder just what might have been. I'd have loved to have seen some TNT scenarios from the likes of Marcus Rowland or Albi Foray. Ah well, I'm off for another pint in the Mad Dwarf Inn. Are you coming? Just bloody rules! We have returned to the room of role-playing rambling. And uh, over on that side of the room, I have his honour himself, Judge Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Hello there. Like all great games masters, you should have an eye on the rules. Yes. And Judge Blythe is our resident rules lawyer, and he looks in detail at some of the rules of the games under discussion. And with Tunnels and Trolls, You've not a lot to go at, have you? Because it's a very rules-like system. It is, it is. And that's uh, why it's good. And that's Yeah, and that's why it's good. I think that it is good because of that reason. So, uh, in this section, I ask you to name your three rules that you think are... My three rules? Your, yeah. you know, more significant. So, what are the three rules? Well, three rules are character statistics... Right, so the attributes of the attributes of yeah. characters. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, saving throws. Yeah. And character races or non-human, non-human characters. Right. Okay. The rules for non-human characters. Okay. Well, let's start with the first one about attributes and how attributes are used in tunnels and trolls. Well, the reason I picked attributes is because two reasons. What one is it has the attribute of luck. In there. Yeah. So I think it's the first game to use with luck. It is, uh, uh, and this brings me on to the point that you know a lot of games now use luck. You know, Cthulhu mm. uses luck. Yeah. RuneQuest Six has luck points. Uh, there are lots of games that use luck, and this was the first game to use it. RuneQuest has power, which is often used as luck, uh, but it's not really luck, is it? It's no. that kind of influence with the gods. I, th- I think so. it's become luck. Because of uh, Cthulhu, wasn't it? It's kind yes. of uh, yeah, he's exactly, use yeah. it that way. But, but at the time, it wasn't. So the Tons of Trolls has this, the attribute of luck, which I think is uh, is an interesting one. And it's interesting how it's used in the game because, as anyone knows who plays role playing games now, having a luck statistic is a great statistic for those moments in a game where you think, as a games master, oh, I don't know how to resolve this. You know. Yeah. yeah. So the, the classic is always well. Um, I'll get a piece of rope out of my backpack and the games master will say, hang on a minute, you didn't say you brought any rope. Yeah. And of course the player will always say, well, but surely, surely if I'm going down a dungeon, I would have brought some rope. Yeah. And the games master will think, well, he's got a point, but at the same time, I can't let him draw anything he wants out of his haversack. Yeah. And a luck roll. Yeah. A luck roll is what you do, you know. Yeah. Is he lucky enough to remember to bring the rope? Yeah. So I think luck is a really good statistic 
Yeah, and um, it comes into the saving throws quite a bit. Doesn't it comes it? into saving throws. Yeah, and I, th- yeah. I, I think what um, luck brings to the game as well. Before we move on to other mm. uh, um, characteristics and attributes in that, is it's that sense of fatalism in um, tons and trolls. You know, already we've said there's no clerics, so you're kind of all alone in a godless universe. Yes, it is, isn't it? It's a bit like that. Yeah, and yeah. you know, you're at the mercy of traps <laughs> and. <Yes. laughs> Yeah, there's oh, no one watching is. over you, you know, in tunnels and trolls. <laughs> so I think that looks a, looks a good attribute to have. Yeah, it is. It makes sense. It fits in with the philosophy of the game, really, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 So look, but what? But in broader terms, what's good about statistics in tunnels and trolls is that ultimately everything comes back to your statistics. So you roll your 3d6, you get your strength, you know, they're, they're conventional, apart from luck, they're conventional statistics, very yeah. much like D&D, uh, strength, constitution, dexterity, IQ, IQ for intelligence, Charisma. those kind of things. So there's nothing unusual about them in that sense. But what it makes it quite different is that in games like D&D uh, and games like RuneQuest, there's always that thing where you would roll your stats, and then those stats would generate bonuses. Uh, so in D&D, you know, you roll a 16 strength, and you might get a plus one to hit, plus one to damage. Uh, in RuneQuest, you know, you have a strength of 15, and a size of, I don't know, 13, you get a D4 damage bonus. But if you've got a strength of 16, and a size of 16, you'll get a D6. What's Tunnels and Trolls does, although, there's a bit of that in that you get combat ads based on your statistics, but ultimately it all comes back to stats. So there's no sense in Tunnels and Trolls of thinking, do you know what? I've got a strength of 14, but I really wish it was 15, because if it was 15, I'd get all these bonuses. Which games like RuneQuest and D&D, they do that, don't they? Yeah. Tunnels and Trolls doesn't really do that. And what Tunnels and Trolls also does is when you go up the levels, there's a very simple system as when you go up a level, you can add points to the stats so your stats can go up which allows you to sort of customize your character a bit you know yeah. so unlike D, if you're playing a warrior in tunnels and trolls you can decide well do you know what when he goes up a level this time i think i actually want to improve his intelligence a bit yeah whereas in D, you kind of straight jacketed a bit into when you go up a level as a fighter this is what you're going to get whether yeah. you like it or not yeah you don't have much choice in it uh, not so much in later editions of D&D, but certainly in first edition D&D, you go up a level, this is what you're going to get. In Tunnels and Trolls, because it's all about the stats, and that's all it's about, you might want to go, oh, I'm going to add two points to my intelligence. I'm going to add two points to my charisma. This yeah. fighter that I'm playing, this warrior, I want him to be more charismatic for, yeah. for whatever reason. Yeah. Whereas in other games, you don't really get that. Yeah, I think it contributes to the um, simplicity, doesn't it? So yeah. this is the reason why yeah. you can put your character on an index card. You know, yeah. right? when you yeah. face very with simple. The, yeah, yeah, very simple. When you face with a, a normal character sheet, you've got all the skill listings and all the different yeah. Yeah. Um, elements. But uh, it's very simple, isn't it? Exactly. And, and to touch on, I'll talk about saving throws in a minute. But to touch on the saving throws thing, saving throws in the in the rules talk about saving throws in relation to luck. But, but you can use saving throws against any statistic. So again, you come back to that thing of, to use the D&D comparison, if you say in D&D, 
I want to kick this door in or bend these bars. Your old favourite, yeah. bend bars. You look at your strength and someone says, oh, well, you've got strength of whatever. You've got such a percentage chance of bending the bars. In Tunnels and Trolls, the games master would say, right, well, I'm going to make this a level three saving throw and you deduct your strength from the target number and try and roll over that on two dice. So the statistic has a very, very direct bearing on achieving what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. And having an extra couple of points on that stat would have, would play into that. Make a Whereas I think in some games it, it doesn't. I, I mean, I always felt with D&D that you rolled your stats, it generated all these bonuses, or didn't, depending. Mm. Um, and then it was almost like statistics were left behind. So I can remember uh, playing a game with Kevin. Mm-hmm. Bring Kevin back into it. He played a paladin, and he lowered. He, he the paladin had a very low intelligence of about eight, and it, it never really seemed to matter. It yeah. Never mattered yeah. because once you calculated all the bonuses, the statistics seemed sort of forgotten about. Yeah. But what's good about tunnels and trolls is that they're not forgotten about because they lie right at the heart of everything that you're doing. Yes, and that's a great thing, yeah. you know. Really so let's like stick stick with saving throws then. So just to explain how these work. Well, the saving throws, um, you have the games master decides on a level, so a level from one to well, I think it's probably infinite, but say one yeah. to six, and I think level one is. 20 yeah yeah you deduct your luck from 20 yeah and or whatever attribute you well i think in the rules it talks about luck but but you can extend it quite easily yeah to any statistic so you deduct luck from so if your luck was was 15 you would deduct 15 from 20 5 roll two dice roll five or more you make the saving throw yeah, and you roll doubles twice again. If you roll two dice, you roll it twice. Yeah, the yeah. uh, double, yeah, or double, you roll it twice. Uh, a second level saving throw is, I think, twenty-five. So again, if you had a look at fifteen, level two saving throw, you'd have to roll ten or more, deduct fifteen from twenty-five. But you can apply those saving throws to to any statistic. So you could say, right, I'm going to shoulder charge this door. Um, and the games master might say, well. It's a fairly flimsy door, I'll say. It's a level one saving throw. Um, you've got a strength of 12, so eight or more on two dice. And I think that's where um, that indie spirit comes in, isn't it? Because yes. anybody who is familiar with Fate yep. or with Numenera or these yep. target numbers exactly. yep. um, yep. come into play. And that's what's it? fascinating to read Tunnels and Trolls now, something that is a very, very old game that was brought in right at the beginnings of role-playing. But that concept is present in lots and lots. Even 5th edition D&D has yeah, that, yeah. doesn't it? With, yeah, yeah. with saving throws, where you've got this target number and you deduct and use your modifiers. Yeah. But they, they all come back to that idea of levels on saving throws. It's so common in modern games. Yeah, yeah. There it is. Yeah. You know. That negotiated target is uh, is yeah. right though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And and it's 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 brilliant because again, when you you look at D&D at the time, um you would always have that problem of how do I achieve this? And you never really knew, you know. Yeah. You knew it, you knew you could bend bars. You had a <laughs> bend bars percentage. But when it came to other stuff, <laughs> you just just said, "Well, I don't know. What do what do we do?" I think we used to default to 
rolling under your statistic. I always yeah. remember doing that and sort of saying, oh, well, if it was a feat of strength, roll under your strength on a D20, so yeah. the higher the strength, the better. Uh, but that never felt satisfactory because you thought, but some feats of strength are harder than others, aren't they? Yeah. But that level saving throw, and it, it, it's brilliant because it's only, I think, a page in the rules, isn't it? Yeah. Is it a page or two pages? Yeah. No, it's a page in the rules. Uh, and you read that and you think, oh, this is, this is brilliant. Yeah. This is brilliant. All you've, all you've got to do is, the player wants to do something, think to yourself, how hard is it on a scale of one to five? Say, one being easy, five being really difficult. Um, pick an appropriate stat, deduct it, does your dice, roll over it. Yeah. And even if, it's, even if it seems like an impossible number, the fact that you can uh, roll doubles again. Absolutely, yeah. So there is, there's still that element of heroic fantasy where you think it seems you know, it'd be a life and death saving throw. The chances are incredibly remote, but you roll, uh, you roll two fives. You yeah. know, it's a ten. Roll them again. You know, yeah, and yeah. you could do it. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant, really. So simple, and, and it, it's it's sort of it's sort of funny to look at tunnels and trolls. And Dungeon Master's Guide and Player's Handbook. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come on, look, look a few at weeks all, ago. Look at all this. <laughs> look you... at all this. And yet this guy solves it in a page. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, it is amazing to think back. Again, we, so we, we were a bit, you know, people were a bit sniffy about Tunnels and Trolls. We, 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 we definitely were. We were a bit sniffy about it. But, but look, looking back now, uh, I wish I'd given him more attention. Brilliant. I, I kind of did when, you know, uh, Eddie uh, used to come with all these, like, wacky off-the-wall ideas. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and it's from playing yeah, this, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Just yeah. going for it, you know, just yeah. going for it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant little rule that's just in there and solves almost anything. Almost anything. Your third uh, rule is, uh, well, the third aspect of the recall mechanics around non-human races well yeah uh, I like the fact that it's got non-human races in it and it's also got um, RuneQuest had a um, RuneQuest professed to do this but I think we'll take issue with them a little bit over it um, which I'll come on to in a minute but what Tunnels and Trolls does which again not many games at the time did it allows you to play non-human races, the traditional ones, which is no, no surprise, you know, dwarves, elves, I mean, all games allow you to do that. But the personalisation of monsters at the back allowed you to play all sorts of non-human races, very, yeah. very simply, by simply proportioning up or down your stats. So, you know, if you're an ogre, times your strength by two, yeah. that kind of thing, you know, but your intelligence goes down by three quarters and that kind of thing. Very simple way of doing it. Um, and I suppose it sort of allowed you to play the character you wanted. So it if you did. wanted to play a really big, brutal kind of warrior and you rolled a duff strength roll, you could be an ogre yeah. and be that character. That's, so the, that's the bit that I like because of the randomness of uh, rolling your attributes. Yeah. You've got that position where you think, well, I've got a low strength and I could do my constitution uh, being higher. Mm. I'll um, become a dwarf. So what you do then is uh, you multiply it, don't you, by yes. uh, yeah, yeah. one point five or by two yeah. or whatever. And it's as simple as that, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I suppose you could say that there's an element of you had a power gamer doing that. You know, he rolled a high strength and then decided to be an ogre and thought, ha-ha. <laughs> but know. for some reason, that doesn't seem to come into play. I mean, one of the things, um, and maybe this is, um, you know, we've got to acknowledge that um, Ken Santandra is accredited in the dedication for RuneQuest, isn't it? Mm. For, uh, you know, inspiring the next move on. And, you know, the, the idea of playing different races, uh, one element of it. But I think I think it's that thing of being able to turn things on the head. So mm. the reason why it becomes interesting having um, played Goblin is actually, you know, being the Goblin party waiting in the dungeon for the murder hobos yeah. to appear, <laughs> you know, and having adventures in that. Yeah, you know, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're the bad guys. Yeah, you know, you could play. Yeah. yeah, you could play a little tribe of goblins. Yeah, yeah. you can, can't you? You can do things like that. And so those are the uh, three things that you like about the rules. Mm. One element that you don't like. One element I was never keen on, um, and I think I'm right in saying that later editions have resolved this problem. But at the time, one thing I never liked was the fact that when a magic user, a wizard, casts spells, the cost of casting the spells came off their strength, their physical strength. Yeah. Which always seemed a bit weird. In the Could have very butch uh, Yeah, very butch yeah. Wizards. So to be, a, to be a good magic user, you had to be like Arnold Schwarzenegger or something, <laughs> or Luferigno, you know, that kind of really, really big butch. And you think, well, it doesn't quite sit right with a wizard. You know, I mean, yeah. you can have you can have big butch wizard, of course you can, but if you want. But it doesn't sit right with, like, the idea of uh, some wizened old man with a beard or some frail character who's devoted his life to the study of magic has to be built like a brick outhouse to cast any spells. <laughs> Never quite sat right with me. I suppose that's one way of looking at it. See, I didn't necessarily have a problem with it because you could see um, strength as being a kind of abstract quality as well, couldn't you? You can you, do, So yeah, it's yeah. physical strength and, you know... But you'd think it would be... Con- you know. you start, if, if you want to do that, would it be constitution? So if, if, it, if it's physical energy, would it, be consti- it would cost you constitution points, not yeah. strength? Because strength feels more like an attri- a fixed attribute. You, I am this strong. Constitution feels more flexible because if you got ill or you exerted yourself, maybe you would constitution would drop. Um, but I think it it was another innovation, though, wasn't it? Because you know when you look at um, Dungeons and Dragons, trying to fathom out in those early years of how to uh, work out spells, you know that you remember the men forgot. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. this was the first one to introduce the idea of points deduction. Yeah. Which yeah. was again carried on through RuneQuest. Yeah. And that's good. The points deduction things are good. That's that's good. I mean, I like that. That, that makes a lot of sense and it allows you, you know, to do, cast spells more than once and work out how many points you've got. That's fine. But I just never, I never quite sat right. In my imagination, it sort of suggested that the greatest wizards of the land would all be huge hulking figures. <laughs> just what? Hulk Hogan. Yeah, Hulk. Sylvester <laughs> Stallone. Sylvester Stallone. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Dolph Lundgren. You know, <laughs> oh, with uh, pointy hats on. Yeah, if you had to make Tunnels and Trolls the movie, they would have to play the wizards. And it just didn't... I thought, well, what? I, th- I think we should option that for you. We should pitch it, put it into development. <laughs> Expendables, the bewitched years. <laughs> guilty of slagging off the magic system in Tunnels and Trolls but I don't have a real problem with the magic system the spells themselves are good and what's also good about it 
is that rogues, who are the equivalent of a thief in Tunnels and Trolls, can learn spells off magic users. So that idea that magic isn't the actual... I know in D&D thieves can use spell scrolls at high levels and all that, but it's not that idea that magic is the preserve of wizards. You know, mm-hmm. Wizards can teach a rogue spells, you know, so you yeah. can play a rogue and be a bit fighty, but also have a bit of magic. Yeah. And I suppose, in a way, again, that's like a RuneQuest thing, isn't it? In yeah. there, some circling around in there is this idea that you've got a character class that can do a bit of both, really, you yeah. know. And that's, that's a good thing, you know. Maybe the difficulty with um, spells and with magic and everything we discuss is the fact is is that we've yet to find a system where we thoroughly into the spells. I mean, I know you're a big D and D spell mm. fan, but you know, I think it's a call out to our listeners to help us find a system where the perfect magic system, the perfect magic system. that balances. Yeah, that, that balances interesting spells. Because, again, RuneQuest, some of the spells are a bit dull, yeah. a bit mechanical, a bit, bit yeah. functional, aren't they? Um, but the the system of PowerPoints and... What I find interesting now, Josh Blyden, is that in previous podcasts, one of the things that you've always pulled out is combat. Because mm. combat being front and centre to mm. most role-playing yes. systems from back in the day... Yeah. Why, why do you think why is it why is it not come up I think I know the reason why but I'm going to give you the chance <laughs> to, to put it well I'm setting a trap for you you're setting a grim, grim tooth trap grim dirk's <laughs> trap well the combat system in Tunnels and Trolls is in one sense quite a neat system uh, because it doesn't rely on any tables it doesn't rely on many calculations it's basically you have your weapon and your stats give you some additions to that and you roll your dice d6 by the way all d6 as yeah. i say i forgive it no cleric you're forgiven ken yeah. we're coming up with a game just d6 um and then your opponent rolls their dice based on their weapon subtract the two and whoever has got the highest yeah deals the damage so to speak yes so, you know yeah. someone rolls 15 you roll 20, they take 5 damage. Uh, armour soaks up damage, which Action. again is an interesting thing, because in D&D at the time, the armour class just makes you harder to hit. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't have a problem with that as such. What I do have a problem with, and I can remember this back in the day, <laughs> is it starts to get a bit out of hand. Yeah. <laughs> because you end up... Now, don't get me wrong, we all like rolling lots of dice. We've all been a magic user and cast a 10th level fireball and gone, oh, 10d6 damage, come on, let me get me to... It's all right, it's a one-off. As you know, I'm not a man of excess. This is, this is the thing, I'm not a man of excesses. It's all right, it's a one-off. But in Tunnels and Trolls, and I think we had this problem, you, and I think and you're right in saying you combine your attacks, don't you? So it's yeah, not yeah. even... That you attack individually. So, so as a party, you combine. You roll tons of d6, and then your opponent rolls tons of d6. And I know before anyone writes in, <laughs> I know you can roll the d6 separately. So if it was, 
if it was 15d6, you could roll 3d6 five times. Yeah, yeah I know you can do that. Well, that's not how it works, is it? That's not how it worked in the day. When right. someone had to roll 15d6 or 20d6, we scoured the house. They wanted to find 20 yeah. of the damn things yeah. and then they'd roll them and two of them would bounce off the table. And then you go, oh, does that count? It's on the floor. No, roll it again. Oh, no, it's a sick count. It count. And it descended into farce at times. <laughs> and, and sometimes, maybe maybe you're right. Maybe at the time we were being poor-faced gamers, being taking it too seriously. But there's an element of, whilst 30% of any role-playing game is about laughter, I would say, on average. Yeah. There's a good 35% of any, any role-playing game I've ever yeah. played. I've had a lot of laughs in. I'm not, I'm not saying... You shouldn't have fun. I'm not yeah. saying you shouldn't enjoy yourself. Well, I think you are. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't enjoy yourself too much. But you, sometimes in combat, you want a bit of tension. And when people are throwing around 53 D6 and they're bouncing all over the place and the dog's eating one and all that kind of thing, it gets a bit mental and mad. And, and it, you think, oh, it's, it's a bit silly. It yeah. can descend. It's not, the combat system is not silly in itself. It's quite slick and quite a neat idea and clever, like a lot of Tunnels and Trolls is. Yeah. But there's that point in it where it can, if you allow it, get a bit, well, a bit crazy. Well, my, bit my, mum and, my mum and dad couldn't, uh, couldn't play Yatsi for years. Because uh, <laughs> you'd stolen all the D6, yeah. But I think, uh, I, I think you're right in some 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 extent, but I think I think it is uh, kind of neat and it fits in with uh, mm, yeah. uh, the essence of the game. Um, and one of the things that first drew me to uh, Tons and Trolls was the exotic descriptions of the weapons. Oh yes, the good weapons are they? Yeah. very educational. Those. Yeah, you know. we used to spend hours, didn't we, looking up, finding mm. out before what... Google. We couldn't Google things. We had no, to look no. up in proper encyclopedias what a falchion was and a, oh, a flamberge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You thought, What's one of those? Uh, Manopil. Yeah. Well, that is very, very, very good. Yeah. <laughs> it's possibly the greatest weapons list in any role playing game, I would say. Yeah. You know. I mean, you know, it just amounts to multiples of D6, but that didn't matter, did it? You know? Yeah. The thing I didn't like about TNT. Okay. But in retrospect, I think he's wonderful. Mm. Right? Okay. So I'm going back and put my rose tinted glasses. Yes. Are taking me back to the 13 year The thing that disappointed me, there's no bestery in it. So there's no monster descriptions. No. When I bought, yes. uh, when I buy a new game, first thing I do is look at the monster descriptions. Yes. And look at where they are. Uh, you know, what to get an essence and a feel for the game by how it's populated. But you don't get that in TNT. No, and you don't get special attacks or anything like that. No. So it, it, doesn't it doesn't ironically whilst the monster table allows you to personalize monsters from the point of view that a player could play one of them it doesn't really give you a description of any special abilities no. or anything like that in there does it so what you get what you get is just like a page really um which just tells you how to deal with monsters so yeah. they just have yeah. uh, multiple dice and they have monster rating yeah. to describe how many d6 they've got mm. and in one um, version of the rules, uh, the more you injure a monster, the monster rating goes down, therefore it's level of attack. Yeah. So what you find is that the balance of the fights tends to shift, shift yeah. um, quite quickly one way or another for the monster, it turns against the monster. There is an alternative rule to give it a constitution so that you're subtracting yeah. uh, from there. Yeah. And as you say, there are 
um, there is a chance to have uh, monsters having attributes um, for more person and equipping them with weapons. So you've got those options. Yeah. But at the time, I remember, you know, that that's the bit I enjoyed. You know, I enjoyed all that. But, you know, uh, Ken Sandra, I've, I've read since, is very dismissive of Fiend Folio in uh, mm. White Dwarf and all those things because quite rightly he says, what do you need them for? Just make them up. You know, just make if you if you, if you want <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah if you want to have a monster in there, um, just give it a monster rating, and decide what its special attacks are. You know, if it can't, can't be hit by anything other than a silver weapon, well, so be it. You know, yeah, you there is that. There, there is that. Yeah, the, the, yeah, you can just uh, decide. Well, I, didn't, I didn't appreciate that at the time, but I think now I think that's wonderful. You know that yeah. that is the reason why it was so liberating because. Mm. You could populate it with whatever yeah. you wanted, you yeah. know. You know. I, I agree with you. I, I suppose sometimes, though, having lists of monsters with abilities does give you the advantage as a games master of some of the abilities monsters have are things you wouldn't think of necessarily. Yeah. So um, there is that. But again, we're drawn back to, I think the whole this conversation, you're always drawn back to that thing of, it's slick and it's simple and it's almost like a framework for more modern role playing games yeah you know modern modern role playing games in some respects even even D&D even 5th edition D&D yeah has gone more down the road of tunnels and trolls than yeah. D&D in some respects it's an odd yeah. thing isn't it to think of you know the, the the games we've played that have been more I mean modern so Numenera Knights Black Agents uh, one or two others feel to have more in common with tunnels and trolls yeah. than D and D. Yeah. To my, to my mind, I mean, there's obviously there's I mean, there's only so much you can do with a role playing game at the end of the day, isn't there? so they're all they all have something in common with D and D, of course they do. But in in ethos and the way they presented and the kind of idea behind them and and also the advice to sort of games masters. The advice is more in line with that little yellow book than it is with the Dungeon Master's Guide. Absolutely. Mm. And I think, um, looking at it now, um, this is the last of the great games that we played back in the day. So, you know, so far in the Grognard Files, we've covered all the big ones that we played, didn't we? You know, RuneQuest, Traveller, Stormbringer. Mm. Um, D&D we came to this one last because our um, memories of it were kind of flavoured by this mm. kind of yeah. Oh, yeah we played it but we didn't yeah. treat it with any reverence yes yeah coming back to it I realised that this mm. is one of the great foundations yes. of role the great fa- yeah absolutely yeah yeah. I say like a work of genius yeah, yeah it really is because you you look at it and you think where would where would role playing have gone if tunnels and trolls had been invented? Yeah, you know, had been created. Would it have just gone down the road of D and D of more rules and more tables and more complexity and more? You know, I mean, I, <laughs> come back to the bard. The thing about there's bards in first edition D and D. You look at that. Just consider that for a moment. To be a bard. In first edition D and D, which is tucked away in the appendix for some unknown reason, you have to have quite high statistics. You know, strength think fifteen, wisdom fourteen. Then you have to be, you know, a fighter, 
and then at between fifth and sixth level change to a thief and then between seventh and eighth level change to a magic user and all and you think what what's going on here yeah what yeah. is this about and then you read tunnels and trolls and you think yeah. well he doesn't he doesn't have bad it but if you if you wanted your warrior or probably appropriately your rogue to be a bard just buy a loot buy yourself a loot and when you go up levels put your points onto your charisma and your intelligence yeah you know and then you can do things to persuade monsters not to attack you you can sing monsters a song to suit yeah. or you know rally uh, rally your party with a stirring uh, stirring poem or something and you do a charisma saving throw. Yeah. Simple. You, you don't need all these weird rules and tables. You, you, yeah. you just don't. Yeah. And that's what's incredible about it, really. Thanks a lot, Blythe. Goodbye. And bargain shed. Okay, I'm shambling down the bottom of the garden at Dirt Towers, down to the, uh, the shed here. I've not been here for a bit. Come in. Hello there, Eddie. Hello, Dirk. Now, you're back by popular demand. Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, you didn't appear in the D&D uh, episodes because you didn't really collect uh, D&D. You never played it, have you, other, other than the 5th edition? Uh, well, I did play it back in the day. In yeah. the 80s, we uh, played it for about 12 months before we kind of moved on to RuneQuest and then we never went back. Yeah. Evolved. So this, this was uh, pre-Armchair Adventures, wasn't it? This? It was, yeah. yeah. We played it at school. Probably about the third, fourth year at school with Herbs and the rest of the gang. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, but once we discovered RuneQuest, we didn't go back. I never felt the need to, really. And the, because uh, I think when we played the D&D 5th edition, it was really the first time that we played D&D together. That's right, because we never did, did we? No. Uh, the Armchair Adventures never played Dungeons & Dragons. We played a bit of Tunnels and Trolls, but... Yeah. Not much, maybe very late on as a yeah. a novelty game or something, but uh, and a few other games. But they, we never played Dungeons and Dragons, did we? Well, the reason why you're here is because I know that Tunnels and Trolls was your first game. That's so right. tell me about that first game. Do you remember it? Well, I don't remember the game, but I remember we played it in a classroom in school. <laughs> now, this is a, this is the trouble of doing a, a nostalgia based podcast with somebody who's got amnesia. <laughs> about, the, about, the, about the teenage years but. I think some of it is I do remember playing it I think we played it for about 12 months I think because uh, when we first started role playing when I was in the second year at the, at the school now I probably bored you with this tale before and it's uh, when the schools in Bolton went comprehensive we were the first set of mixed you know, lads and girls that went to this girls' school that I went to. And so every year above me was was girls. And I remember one assembly where we all sat there bored out of our heads and listening to Sister Barbara tell us rubbish. And a couple of girls got on stage and said, oh, they're running a Tunnels and Trolls club. It's all about fantasy fighting monsters and going down dungeons. And me and Herbert looked at each other and thought, oh, I'll have a go at that then. So the lunchtime, we went along and then we never looked back. But I don't remember the game. We must have played a game then, but I don't remember what game it was. But I think it was probably something that the girls had invented. You know, it was a Tunnels and Trolls is, is great for just drawing a dungeon on a piece of paper and just playing. And I think that's what we did for 12 months. 
uh, Herbert would draw something, stock it with monsters, and we'd just go in and kill things. Yeah. That was it. <laughs> I, I think what we've been uh, talking about uh, with Tunnels and Trolls is that it's that spirit of just making stuff up, isn't mm. it? That's uh, much more liberating than some of the other games that we've played. Yeah, I think with being the first game at the time, I didn't know anything about any other games. Uh, I didn't know anything about role-playing in general. Uh, so it was just a game that when they said you could... Obviously, we played board games, and when they said you could take this and just take it as far and as far as you want, just reinvent another dungeon, add another a wilderness adventure, and you could just replay it and replay it with different, a different scene, and it uh, seemed fantastic to me, whereas a board game, you just go around in a circle. <laughs> don't you Monopoly Cluedo you just go around in a circle you play it three or four times and it's the same old same old but with with uh, role playing you just another scene every time you can change it it's just fantastic what what, what uh, characterises uh, your uh, games as a player is that you kind of come up with quirky type of characters and I know that in Tons of Trolls it really lent itself to doing that um, one of the characters I remember you playing was a dwarf who was a mute who had a fairy <laughs> called Mouth who would do his talking for him. Yeah. Oh, so I think I'd have completely forgot about that so you I think you reminded me a few years ago about that and I was quite amazed that I had some imagination back then. <laughs> <laughs> if you wanted to uh, recreate uh, Tunnels and Trolls experience now and uh, you're going on eBay what what can you expect to pay? I think for the rule book, I uh, picked up the rule book a couple of years ago and I paid £8. Now, I can't remember whether that was with delivery or not. Uh, it possibly did include delivery, and I think I'd expect to pay below a tenner for the rule book uh, and probably around about £5, maybe 5 to £10 for the, for the actual games themselves. Yeah. They're all very, the original ones anyway, I mean, they're all very. They're almost like fanzines, aren't they? Yeah. They're very amateurishly printed. Yeah. Uh, but for some people, it, it, if, if they played it back then, and it's great stuff. It's worth it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's quite a cheap game to get into, I think, even now. They're quite um, quite easy to get hold of the rule books as well, aren't they? Um, I, I think, got a set of the uh, Corgi um, rule books. Do you remember they came out on the paperback? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got reprinted them. Is that like the third reprinting or something? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know, but... Um, yeah, I got a set of them, and that cost me twenty quid with about four solo games with it as well. Right. Yeah. So. Well, that's, that's the same. I mean, I think I remember there's like Naked Doom and Sorcerer Solitaire and was like Death Trap Equalizer. Done. I think I played it through a few of the solo books back in the yeah. day. Now, that's the beauty about Tunnels and Trolls. Actually, it does lend itself to the solo play. Yeah. More, it's quite easy to run on your own, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that's what helps it. I mean, this was pre-internet, a pre. Uh, mobile phone days. I mean, you couldn't even use your phone without your mum or dad moaning at you. So you could, you had no contact <laughs> with anybody else. Did you? So you could go off to your bedroom and play a game. It was quite good. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. Tunnels and trolls for that. Well, thanks for that, then, uh, Eddie. Until next time, see ya. No problem. See you then. See ya. There is no next bit. That's the end of the first part of the podcast on TNT. It's been a revelation rediscovering the rules and. Revisiting my opinion and realising what a positive effect the game had on my early years of playing. I visited Watson Hall, home of Big Jack Brass himself, John Hancock, and interviewed him about 
how he has been affected by some of the issues covered in this part of the episode. He stayed with TNT when many left it behind, so he's able to give an illuminating insight into the development of the game in the context of its different editions. I recorded it last week. It's great stuff. Something for you to look forward to next time. The next episode will be returning to Traveller, specifically the Traveller Adventure, which we've just finished after 44 hours of playing it online. If you have any Traveller-related questions to be covered in a special postbag with Blythe, then send it to thegrognardfiles.com or Twitter at thegrognardfile or dirtthedice at gmail.com. The Travel Adventure episode was requested by Patreon Fred Kish. The podcast will always be free, but the Patreon campaign has helped support the cost of the podcast and helps to fund additional projects. We've had our noses to the grindstone, producing the fanzine for backers only. If you'd like a hard copy of the fanzine when it comes out in November 2016, uh, put your backing level to $3.5 per month before the end of September 2016. All patrons will have access to a PDF download, so if you'd like to chuck a dollar into the uh, beret, then please do so. Attendees at Grogmeet 16 will also get a copy. The zine will be launched at this mini convention in Manchester on the 12th of November. Lots of things included in the zine, including a cutout and keep shrine to Caroline Monroe so you can make your own at home. Um, there's a fate Jerry Cornelius scenario, which uh, uh, we played uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, much, much, much more. Once again, if you want a hard copy, please sign up before the end of September. I don't want you to miss out if you really want one, because the print run will be strictly limited. People who have uh, signed up the pledge level to $3.5 are Brian Lavelle, Ian Westbrook, Jason Beaumont, Rob Cook, Mark Lord and Tunini has also increased his pledge level. Thank you very much to all of you. We really are very grateful of your support. So, until next time, when I take that trip to Watson Hall, adios amigos.